there's more similarities between my living situation and the living situation in a prison institution. Introducing Invisible Institutions, a new podcast investigating the unreported and invisibilized horrors of the institutional system. It was like a prison, and I know that sounds hyperbolic, but it was. Coming February 2022. Hello, hello, listeners. It's Kyla. I'm here to tell you about Code Whack, a podcast that shines a light on the callous American healthcare system and what can be done about it. It reveals the healthcare hassles that threaten peace of mind, financial security, and at times, patients' very lives. Hosted by Brenda Gazar, you'll hear interviews with the sharpest minds in healthcare advocacy. Listen to Code Whack wherever you get your podcasts or by going to codewack.libsyn.com. Welcome to Pullback, the podcast that digs into the ethics behind everyday choices. We are a proud member of the Harbinger Media Network, and you can check out our partner shows at harbingermedianetwork.com. I really would like to recommend this week that everyone check out Gender Troubles. We just recorded an episode with them, and they are delightful and extremely knowledgeable. So everyone should check them out. Uh, I am Kyla Hewson, and you're listening to Pullback, just in case I made that confusing. <laughs> and I'm here with Christian Pugh. 10110. Did I do tech right? <laughs> Is that your name in binary? <laughs> I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> then no, you didn't do it right. <laughs> and we're also here with uh, with Robert Miller, our friend and activist, who is going to be joining us to discuss one of my favorite topics, surveillance capitalism. We all read a book for this. Kristen and I, I don't know how far Kristen got into the second book that we were reading for it. I <laughs> bit off more than I could chew. We'll talk about that. But the first book we're talking about is How to Destroy Surveillance Capitalism by Cory Doctorow. And I think we're all really excited to, to dig into this one. What did you guys think? Yeah, I love Doctorow. He also has an absolutely fantastic like Twitter presence and his blog is is quite fascinating. And reading this book was a lot of just like Dr. O's greatest hits. He really has a beat and a, a style of writing that I really enjoy. So very enjoyable. Yeah, it was like reading the editorial version of all of his uh, <laughs> fictional works. Like he's got a short story series that won a bunch of awards. And in one of them, it's sort of about hacking toasters and like all of his stuff about how Apple locks you in and you can't use other technology made me think a lot about his fiction there. And then like in a lot of his other novels, he's really sort of worried about like the surveillance state and how it's related to capitalism. And he rants about that a lot. So I really enjoyed sort of seeing the connections between, you know, the stories that he thinks up and what he thinks is a true sort of political agenda for fighting big tech monopolies, basically. Did either of you listen? Because he 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 wrote this piece and it's like probably like an hour and a half, two hour read. It's not very long. I really encourage everyone to go like it's we'll link to it so you guys can just read it online. It's very good. But did either of you listen to his podcast reading of it where he just read through it on his podcast like a year ago? No. <laughs> yeah, that's how, uh, that's how I read it was listening to him narrate it. So. It was so delightful. He started every, he did it in seven sessions and he started everyone with just like a five minute 
update on his life and what he's up to and all the writing he's doing. And I'm like, this isn't why I'm here, but I'm enjoying it. <laughs> Love it. Yeah, I bought the book off of Amazon, just like totally defeating the purpose of everything he wrote. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> it was the only way I could get it in Canada, though. <laughs> Did you not know that it was like available on Medium for free? Uh, yeah, I just I don't. When I'm reading, I don't digest arguments as well if it's on digital form. So I need like, I need paper, unfortunately. That's totally fair. I probably could have found an independent bookstore that stocked it, but the ones that I knew about in Ottawa didn't have it. And the one that I like in Edmonton didn't have it. So <laughs> I tried to get it from the library and they were like, oh, the the library in Victoria, which is like a two hour ferry ride away. They were like, they have it. So you can request it from them. And I was like... I feel like that's kind of a dick move. <laughs> no, I really don't think libraries would mind at all. Like they they like to have those networks. It means they have to stock less. And really, like the more people are borrowing, the more you're justifying public funds going to libraries. So that's true. What I did instead is this book, I found out when I started listening to it, which was like four days ago. It's like a response to a much larger book called The Age of Surveillance Capitalism by Shoshana Zuboff, which is very good. But I was like, okay, well, this this book that Dr. O wrote is only like an hour and a half to read. I might as well like dig into this one that he's responding to. So I went to the library next to my work and I was like, okay, well, they're not going to have it because this library carries like 12 books and they did have it. So I was like, okay, I'm like obligated now to just like take it out and read it. But it's like 550 pages and it's academic. Like she, she tries to break it up by like using some flowery language occasionally. I was like, I've read all of these uh, articles that she's just citing, but Kyla definitely has not. Um, <laughs> did it make any sense without? <laughs> it did. It did. And she she does like sometimes use like really gorgeous flowery language just to make sure you're still awake. But I I was like, okay, yesterday I was like, okay, well, I can read 400 because I got 100 pages in and I was like, I can read 400 pages. I read about this book. I read about 30 pages an hour. So I just need to read for like seven hours. <laughs> <laughs> but then a friend of mine that I really like getting uh, high with came over and we smoked a bunch of weed, which is why I'm like gravelly this morning. And that just kind of shot me. So you're going to you're going to have to really tell us what this one's about, Kristen. <laughs> I like it so far and I'm going to finish it, but I didn't uh, didn't finish it in time. No, I mean, I think it's um, it's a really excellent book. There were a couple of chapters that I skipped as well, just because of time. But I'm definitely going to get to them later because it was a really well-written and well-researched book. And it I agree with a lot of Cory Doctorow's critiques, which I'm sure we'll get into in uh, when we actually talk about his book. But it is a really sort of good articulation of what the state of play is today with big tech capitalism and how far those norms have sort of gone away from what we initially thought tech was supposed to be like. And it sort of I think in the best reading of this book, it's taken as this, this way of thinking like, it's actually not normal that tech companies take so much data. It's actually not normal that they are invading our privacy in this way and not like putting it all directly back into the user experience. And this actually is a different form of accumulation. I'm not sure that I agree with her. Her whole argument is that like, there's, this is sort of like a new rogue form of capitalism and that it deviates substantially from other types of accumulation. I'm actually not so sure that's true. I think there are other like industries that have been predatory in this exact same way. 
But it's really good for for pointing out like, oh, Google didn't start like this. Like, remember when Google didn't want to be evil? (laughs) It's like the start of the company. Now it's at the end of their book. Like... (laughs) She does a really good job of tying together the last 20 years of tech and where it started and how each step happened that led us to where we are today and how maybe those steps could have been different. And it's not inevitable that we're living in a surveillance state right now that is run by capitalist corporations. Yeah, there, there's a lot of things to like about the book, for sure. So like my my questions that were raised just in the first 100 pages is basically like, so Google's machine learning comes from the data that's input by users, which is then used to help improve like spell check, translation, voice recognition, search queries, this improved like service. And then it brought more people in to use it. And then it becomes like this sort of like cyclical self-feeding like use machine, which is like how Google became so powerful in the begin to begin with. And that part, I was like, well, I don't think that's such a bad thing, but What she was talking about after that was like when they started using what they were calling data exhaust, which was like waste material, quote unquote, which was actually not waste at all. It's it's the data that people were inputting that they were able to use to create like really powerful machine learning. And I see a lot of value in that. And I can see why a lot of people in Silicon Valley would like like I I can see especially like. 10 years ago, how we were all like worshiping at the altar of big tech. It's it's fascinating the way that it works and it could be really powerful for good. It's just that in like a really crucial moment in Google's history, they really needed to turn a profit very quickly and they were like, fuck it, let's sell ads. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And I mean, I think I think it's also valuable. She talks about the invention of cookies and how when cookies were invented, there was a bunch of legislative attempts to ban them. The White House banned the use of cookie uh, cookies on all federal government websites. So it's there's lots of examples um, throughout her book of how things that we just take for granted as normal practices that companies will say, you know, this is your fair choice. It's totally reasonable that we take this. Like when MIT first invented the first smart home system, they assumed as a baseline that, of course, you would have total control over what kind of data was collected about you. And you'd be the only one that'd be able to use it. And of course, we know that like that is not how the Nest works at all. (laughs) That's not how Google Home works at all. So just to clarify then, for any listeners who aren't like super tech savvy, a cookie is not a delicious thing you get from Subway because for some reason, Subway makes the best cookies and I will fight anyone who disagrees (laughs) with me on that. But it's like a, a piece of data that lives inside your browser that follows you around the internet. So if you go to any website on the internet, they'll have cookies that basically read what you're doing on other sites or what you're doing on their site. And it helps things. It's They're useful. It helps re- like whenever you choose to like remember a password, it's a cookie that's remembering your password, right? So they're not like totally evil by themselves, but just like any anything, they can be used for kind of shady dealing. So to get Robbie in on this, let's move away from Zuboff's book. Yeah. Um, I didn't read Zuboff's book. That would have been cruel to require you to read two books <laughs> for our podcast. <laughs> no, honestly, um, I'm pretty sure that the the defense of privacy that Doctoro cites from her book was one of the like best definitions of privacy that I've seen in terms of like the ways that it impacts our ability to share our inner lives with one another. That it's like, if we don't have a reasonable expectation of privacy, we simply all 
remain in these sort of like deeply unconnected friendships and relationships with others because we fear what happens if we like tell our friend about something that's going on in our lives, which is like socially unacceptable or illegal. And like, what if someone is eavesdropping on us? And it was especially funny for me because like, I don't know if you remember this, Kristen, but back in the debate days, I remember sitting around tables quite often, I think actually with you, and we were trying to figure out like, how do we defend privacy in like a debate context? Because it was so easy in that sort of like neoliberal mindset that pervaded debate to just be like, privacy is a silly thing that doesn't bring economic benefits. So it's like impossible to defend well in a debate. And like, that was one of the things that we, we were mulling at, at that time was like, what about just like the very real social and relationship implications of privacy and how important they are? Yeah, we behave differently in ourselves uh, when we feel like we're being watched and that maybe like that process of self-discovery is inhibited by surveillance capitalism. Yeah. Um, and it's the same thing with like Zubov's technophobia, because this was actually something that I was surprised didn't come up in Dr. O's book, because I've learned so much about Luddism through Dr. O's other work. And like his like blog, especially has been really good for addressing that. But it's like, there is this appearance of when you want to smash the very like visceral, immediate representations of modern technology and destroy those things that you are against technology as a whole. Like that kind of misconception is one of the legacies of Luddism. But just because someone wants to like smash the looms or like completely erase Facebook from existence, not just break it up, doesn't mean that they're, uh, they're against technology. It's just that they have such a visceral, visceral reaction against this specific form of it that it can appear that they are against technology when really it's they are against that very specific implementation of technology. I, I do think she's too capitalist, though. Oh, really? <laughs> <laughs> she does cite Marx in her book, but her solution ultimately is competition, which is also kind of Dr. O's solution. So um, it's interesting that he comes so hard at her, but <laughs> we'll talk about that. <laughs> Yeah, I'm, I'm also actually really curious. I didn't expect her to uh, be talking about tech as like a new form of accumulation because I agree with you that it's like almost certainly it is not. Like the ways in which tech basically is stealing, it's just technology has opened up a new frontier of a common good. And just like all capitalists before them, they have gone into the common spaces and built fences and like claimed little bits of, of our common inheritance as human beings and are trying to profit off of selling back to us the things that they have stolen. Like this is very primitive accumulation. It's just that it's happening in a new space. So in the same way that like colonialism opened up new frontiers in capitalism because it allowed for vast swaths of territory to be annexed uh, and then sold off. Now we have created this new sort of like digital world that Google is like the Dutch East India company of, uh, or like the Hudson Bay company of. It's like, this is the same story in a new place in a new time. Yeah, I totally agree. Um, one of the things that she argues, I mean, she argues that it's an entirely new logic of accumulation, which I thought was a really fascinating argument, but upon more reflection, I don't think it's true. I think she is right to sort of say that it is sort of expanding into a new era of commodifying like human life um, and like planetary life, that 
commodifying the human experience itself is something meaningfully new, but it still follows the same logic of capitalism that has always existed. Yeah. So, yeah. The things that it's been doing, I mean, we have just new tools for it. So I think the, the I think the really groundbreaking thing that she didn't focus enough on, at least in the first hundred pages, which uh, to be fair, I didn't finish it, <laughs> is that the the thing that's really changed is the way that we can target advertising and and we have so much information now about just like the social sciences and like we Google and Facebook can do research in ways that no psychology student getting their MBA or whatever can like, or I guess M- MBS, whatever. I'm not an academic, <laughs> like, <laughs> but in a way that like they have so much data that they can just use and they can just run experiments. And so they can target advertising um, and make products that are based on the human psyche and really tap into uh, like the the ways that people are more susceptible to being like, I, I guess mind control is the way D- Cory Doctorow described it. Yeah, I don't know though. I really bought Doctorow's argument, but like actually, big tech's pretty shitty at this. There's no evidence they do it well. I know it's almost <laughs> like it's almost a crime how bad because they could be so cool. But like, there's actually when I was reading the book, and especially in the very beginning, where he's really sort of like going to task on the way that algorithms are not some kind of like weird mind control magic was a little experiment that I ran a few years ago when I was still like active on Facebook, uh, which was trying to like manipulate and spoof their algorithms and just like see what happens when you do things that are a little bit like unexpected. So my relationship status on Facebook was set to single, which means that I was constantly getting ads for dating apps. And uh, I decided to like click the little X and say, this ad does not interest me. I was like, what happens if I give Facebook this, this information? And so Facebook doesn't relate to this and say, oh, they are not interested in dating apps. They only are able to relate that they are not interested in this particular dating app, which meant that every time that I like progressed this little experiment further, I got progressively weirder, more niche <laughs> dating apps being advertised to. So it's like the, the information that they're working with and the tools that they have are actually really bad um, at sort of like understanding our intentions and desires and wants. Um, but as Dr. O relates so frequently that it's just like we are just bombarded with it constantly. Um, and so it's like if they sell you 10,000 advertisements a day, if even one of them hits, they're like, ooh, big success. <laughs> <laughs> That's mostly, I think, especially near the end where he's talking about how the the most successful sales pitch that any advertiser has ever made is the the value of advertising to the companies that are buying it. Like consumers don't buy it, but businesses do. (laughs) Yeah. I also, the one thing that I really enjoyed about his book is how he said, yes, there are surveillance capitalists like Google, you know, where there is that model of accumulation, um, where it is really about mining your data and selling it to advertisers. But there's an equally fucked up side of tech that is different, and it's the lock-in capitalists (laughs) like Apple. And they're both bad, and they should both feel bad. (laughs) Which I think is really true, because Zuboff, um, in her book, I think this is probably past the point that you read, Kyla, but has this whole chapter that's talking about, like, being able to lock people out of cars and being able to have, like, uh, data underwriting. I don't remember what the exact term she uses for this is. But where like 
There are real-time rate hikes um, if you're like driving at a time that's seen as more dangerous or something like that. And a lot of those things, like the ability to shut off your car if you don't make a lease payment or something like that, they, they do rely on technology in a way, but they're also intimately tied to this problem of monopoly, right? That it's actually, these features are things that consumers hate. Yeah, uh, yeah, yeah. And if we had any power, they wouldn't exist for successful companies. There was a, a great, Tesla has implemented this in its self-driving mechanism. Um, and so it's literally like, if you stop making lease payments on your Tesla, it will lock you out and drive itself back to the Tesla lot. <laughs> <laughs> this kind of behavior is absolutely insane that anyone would be like, yes, I want this in my car. The perfect example of that would be like when you buy music from iTunes or when you buy a book, um, like an ebook version of something or and it's a, it only works on your like Amazon Kindle. You're paying for something, but you don't own it. And that's something yeah. that's new for sure is like normally when you pay for something, you own it. Even if you're buying a house that you have a mortgage on. You own that house, you're just paying the bank back for it. You know what I mean? Yeah, yeah. And the ability for everything to shut down. So, I mean, I guess this leads me into one. I have a few questions from reading these books, and this leads me into the first one. Cory Doctorow takes um, a big hit at the idea of tech exceptionalism. He says, I am kind of a tech exceptionalist, but mostly not, and spends most of the book arguing against it. So question for both of you. Having read this book, do you think tech is meaningfully different? And if so, um, in what ways? I actually really like how Dr. O frames that in the sense that like the problems that we are having with tech monopolies and surveillance capitalism are not new and not unique. And there is nothing exceptional about the abuses that they have created, except on like the very superficial level of this is a brand new abuse that is only possible because like it is on the frontiers of our like modern understanding of bits and bytes and electrons, but that like tech is like new, like it's, it's impossible to deny that this is a new frontier in what is possible, that it's like, we are able to do things through networking and technology that we simply could not have done 50 years ago. Like it is impossible for me to be on this call watching your video streams without like a significant amount of, of technology, like of technology. Like this is, this is exceptional because it is like new. Which will go out in a podcast that people will consume on their smartphones. <laughs> yeah. And so I really like, yeah, Dr. O's framing and how he kind of navigates that of being like, we should, we should believe in like the possibilities of technology to do new and interesting things. It's just, we should be realistic with the fact that it's like, we are not in a sci-fi thriller fighting like supervillains with mind control rays. We are in like a historical reenactment of 1910, 1920 trust busting and the need to destroy these extremely abusive, awful companies. And in that framing, it's like, yeah, tech is tech abuse is not exceptional, even though technology has the potential to be really cool. And this even relates back to, again, like a lot of the Luddist arguments against technology at the time in like the 1820s. Technology should be put to the service of making our lives easier and more rewarding. And but that is not how technology is used by capitalists like capitalists expect human beings to uh, like become accustomed to the rhythms of the machines and the boss sets the rhythm of the machine and expects all of their workers to then follow along. The only reasonable response to that is to smash the looms and smash the clocks. It's like 
the same way that it's like Facebook and Twitter's algorithmic engagement uh, is shitty and we should smash that um, and make Twitter and Facebook and social media generally actually serve the interests of users, um, not eyeballs for advertisers. Speaking as someone who like just discovered TikTok a few months ago, after a decade of the like only algorithms I experienced being from like Google and Facebook in like in that they were the best ones to finally see another algorithm that is also incredible, but in a very different way has been really like mind blowing for me because I'm like, fuck, what a waste of the last decade that Facebook was like the the the, the one setting the pace because like TikTok isn't great either. We're not going to sit here and say that they're not that they don't have problems. But <laughs> yeah, no but, shit. <laughs> yeah. But the algorithm that they're running is so yeah. cool. Like, it's really cool. I don't think any, no one can sit here and be like, it's not cool. And so like, I just wish that we could see more cool things that aren't being driven by advertising and capitalism. Like, imagine if yeah. that wasn't the goal, what we could come up with. Kyla, your comment leads me into another question that I had from reading these two books. So Cory Doctorow's solution at the end, he says, focusing on things like making Facebook do content monitoring to deal with child exploitation. He doesn't specifically use that example, but that I think is the kind of policy solution he's talking about. Those run counterproductive to the goal of breaking up big tech companies because only big players will be able to pay for those kinds of policy solutions. So Doctorow's argument to me seems to be, let's ignore those kinds of like harmful speech, harmful surveillance policy solutions that are being proposed right now, and instead focus all of our attention on trust busting, not only in tech, but everywhere. What do you guys think about that? Like, do you like it? Is it problematic? <laughs> Yeah, I think the the solutions part of Dr. O's book was the part that I was a little bit iffy on. Because I like I do agree that trust busting is obviously going to be incredibly important for this. But I think he does discount things that are like possible and also more complicated than I think he makes them out to be. One of the arguments that he makes near the end of the book is like how weird it is to think of data as property. And so he relates it with these examples of being like, your phone number is a series of integers. It's bizarre that you don't even own. It's bizarre to think of it as data that you do own for the purposes of like selling to Facebook or that like, since we're recording this on Mother's Day, um, he relates these experiences of like, do you license the fact that your mother is your mother from her? Is there like extraction that happens there? And it's these kinds of I was like, this is very weak because what I'm not actually arguing about when I'm selling my Facebook or my phone number to Facebook is do I own the integer? It's do I own the fact, do I own this little piece of data letting Facebook know that this integer relates to me in some way that like, or that this other person relates to me in some way, like they are my mother. It's like, that's actually a very, that is actually a very different relationship than Dr. O makes it out to be. Uh, and in the same way that it's like, I do believe fundamentally that the right to be forgotten needs to be baked into all of the technology that we build. And so it's like, how do I assert a right to be forgotten if I can't assert some kind of property ownership of my data once it's freely available on the web? 
I also don't know that it does rely on property ownership, right? Like, I mean, I think you can demarcate spheres of privacy without saying that it's like a title, you know, like not all forms of property are individual ownership in the way that we've come to expect under capitalism, you know? So I think it's okay to be like, yeah, Google, like, stop filming people's homes like, without inherently saying that you can't take pictures outside, you know, which it just seemed like a bit of a straw man, his whole, that whole chapter, I thought. Yeah. Um, and again, it's like maybe in some cases we shouldn't give like a property relationship there. But I think in terms of like especially personal, di like directly personal data, that it's like the facade of my house is something that anyone walking down the street can see. I don't have a reasonable expectation of privacy, but I do have a reasonable expectation of privacy that someone knows that that facade is actually my house. And so it's like those kinds of things are quite a bit different. And I think he does gloss over them quite a bit. In the same way that there's also like an interesting example of paywalls. So it's like his general argument is that paywalls don't work. Making people pay uh, is not the solution. And I'm broadly in agreement with him. But it's also not universal that paying for things doesn't work. Like one of the really interesting examples that I like to bring up is Something Awful, which is a web forum that has been sort of like one of the major drivers of Internet culture for the last 20 years. Uh, and it charges like a pretty nominal fee for members to join. But the major thing that differentiates it from a lot of the other like walled garden styles of websites is that it is to a like pretty significant extent owned by the users. That it's like you are not simply buying a membership fee onto the Something Awful forum. You are functionally becoming like one of like a part owner of the forum. Uh, at least in terms of how I understand it and things that I have seen coming out from it. And so it's like creating those paywalls and creating sustainable internet communities is actually possible. It's just, once again, we relate to this paying a monopolist to access their monopoly is never going to create the same kinds of relationships that buying into a user-owned social media website is actually going to be able to create real possibilities for good and cool things to happen. Robbie, you have accidentally tapped into the solution that Kristen and I pitched for our porn episode that we just recorded, <laughs> <laughs> which is that paying a monopoly to access something is always bad, but you should pay the users uh, and like is, exist in a community, you know? <laughs> or the create you pay the creators, yeah, rather, yeah. Don't pay the users, that's weird. <laughs> Um, but I do think it's kind of interesting, and it goes to who I think Cory Doctorow is in this space, right? I kind of see him as a person that's hanging on to the vision of the Internet 1.0, you know, the emancipatory power of the Internet, which, yeah, what a lovely dream that was. Uh, <laughs> and if you're holding on to the possibility that the Internet can still exist in that way, your ideology will never allow you to support user fees, right? And I do think there is some justification for that, that you are, ex like, if you're excluding people from access to, you know, social connections online, if you think that's a really fundamental part of the way people access the world, then you are sort of like, it is inherently anti-democratic in a sense. The problem is that, like, <laughs> you know, the current system is also incredibly anti-democratic and arguably much more so. So I don't know what the solution is. 
this for me, for the paywall and accessibility just becomes like another argument around wealth inequality as well. That it's like this same argument is true for owning the basic tools that are necessary to access the internet. Like working with the unhoused, one of the like constant struggles that people encounter is just like they don't have somewhere to charge their phone. Phones are constantly stolen or broken or disappear. It's just like the accessibility of the internet is already a problem. It's like before we're even dealing with paywalls, we're dealing with like tech hardware and tech and hardware acceleration. That it's like now I need like an actually good computer just to fucking use Chrome because it's such a goddamn resource hog. <laughs> yes, there are issues with paywalls. It is possible for what Dr. O describes to sort of have like, you know, all of the rich people have their like beautiful Athenian democracy and everybody else only gets like the crumbs of their philanthropy it was more or less how athenian democracy worked (laughs) but uh but that's not you know again that's not exceptional to tech that is once again just like another basic problem of wealth inequality in our society that one of the reasons why paid services don't work very well is simply because most people don't have money to pay for them and so the solution here is not to say well we don't have paid services it's raise wages (laughs) like Give people money. <laughs> yeah. And I mean, I think Cory Doctorow would agree with that. Like he opens his book by by raising the question of why are conspiracy theories so much more popular now, given that we're living in like one of the most educated ages we've ever been in. And his answer to that is material conditions, which I think, I mean, he focuses on monopoly, but I think he would totally agree with you that it fundamentally is inequality that drives a lot of these problems as well. And one of the, so in the book, he brings up this very interesting example of something that happens to him, which is that he sends his child to daycare. His child gets lice. He asks the daycare worker, um, how do I deal with the lice? And the daycare worker says, oh, you use olive oil on your child's scalp. It's like free and easy and it'll work just fine. And two weeks later, the child still has lice because obviously this person didn't know what they were talking about. Dr. O uses this kind of example as just showing that it's like sort of most people don't have the tools available to them to kind of assess whether the information that they see is accurate. And this to me is like one of those major material conditions that I've encountered, especially as we're like, my background is microbiology and we're moving into this and we've been in this gigantic pandemic for the last two years. And so it's like, Very often, um, people have come to me asking me about sort of like disease and microbiology because I'm someone in their social network whose information they trust. And the overwhelming majority of people do not know a microbiologist who has like worked in a laboratory with colleagues who are developing vaccines. It's like that is just not a thing that most people have access to. And so we don't have like networks of trusted information anymore. But like that's one of the major sort of material conditions that I see contributing to a lot of these conspiracy theories. It's just like, who the fuck do I even trust on these issues? And, you know, no one can have a friend who knows and like works in every field. Like that's just an unreasonable expectation. And yeah, it becomes really like deeply involved with like algorithm editorial powers that Dr. O relates in this book as well, that it's just like, 
how do we how do we navigate a society that is trustless functionally? Yeah, and I mean, I think it's important. Doctor didn't talk about this, but I I've been obsessed with the relationship uh, between inequality and trust for a little while. And uh, one of the things that I read this week, totally unrelated to these books, uh, was the findings of the experiment in Finland on rolling out a universal basic income. And one of the biggest surprises, so they were not surprised to find that well-being skyrocketed for people who got a basic income. (laughs) That was a nice finding, but one that I think anybody who had done any reading on basic income knew was going to happen. They were a little bit surprised that it um, actually increased employment. That's another like good finding, but not totally surprising because people tend to invest more in themselves when they're not worried about just paying rent and eating. But the biggest surprise was how for people who received the basic income, their trust in fellow citizens um, and in institutions went up way, like it, it went up quite considerably and it didn't for the, the group that didn't receive basic income. So I think there's something to the idea that trust has been eroded because we're we're in a situation where we're fighting for scraps a lot of the time. It's really hard just to struggle through the basic conditions of living. And if you have a society where people look after the material needs of one another, that fosters trust not only in institutions of democracy, which is obviously very important, but also in like systems of knowledge production. And when we regulate shit properly and pay regulators enough and hire enough of them that they can actually hold companies to account, I think that also builds trust. So I don't think it's an impossible problem, but I do think it's a root problem. I think he's right in identifying that. Yeah, it's um, it's one of the things that like you see very often with like vaccine fear is that, you know, people don't have access like Dr. O don't have access to like child development specialists that they just sort of like know and trust because most people don't even have a family doctor, let alone like access to like a child psychologist that they see regularly. And so they go online and they try and search for something And really what they are looking for is like comfort. And so they find online communities of like vaccine fear mongers who are willing to offer them that comfort. Um, But then the problem is, is that they create those trusting relationships of solidarity and mutual assistance with people who are out to like steal from them functionally. We see this problem happening with the far right and all the convoy bullshit as well. That it's just like, again, yeah, if people don't have just like the means of subsistence. They will like fight for survival and do weird shit. I think a lot of the issue as well is that not only are we so disconnected that we don't have any way of like fact checking each other, or we end up in these really niche groups that are maybe not great for us. I think a lot of the issue is just that like, this is not in either of their books. And um, this is just a thought that I've had while discussing it with you guys. So maybe you'll disagree. But I feel like we're in a real like a modern age of illiteracy where everyone can mostly read words, but not everyone can understand. We're illiterate when it comes to finding information on the internet, right? Or for understanding the world around us. And just like with regular literacy, you need to have time and a teacher It's hard because like we, the three of us, grew up in uh, a school system that was discovering computers at the same time that we were, right? And anyone older than us isn't going to know even what we learned when we were kids. And 
I don't know if that's going to get better over time as Gen Z like becomes more enmeshed with technology. But I feel like we are just living in a world where people don't understand the how the system works around them because we're all just like illiterate. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I think that's one reason that boomers are more likely to fall for fake news than, you know, Gen Xers, millennials and Zoomers because we are more computer literate. Um, and search engine literate. But I, I think a bigger problem personally is the monopoly that Google has over search engines and the power that it gives them in algorithms. And tied into that, the fact that their primary purpose is to be able to sell you shit <laughs> with their algorithms. Yeah. Well, I mean, the... The number one example of that is YouTube, right? Like they don't care that you're seeing like a, a lot of it is like, yeah, we're illiterate, but also the system is set up around us to prey on that, right? Like YouTube exists to keep you engaged as long as possible and, so that you can see more of their advertising. So what are they, and Facebook does this too. So what are they going to do? They're going to show you inflammatory stuff because that's more likely to get a reaction and it's more likely to get views and it's more likely to get comments and shares. So we're living in a system where not only do people not understand the system, but we <laughs> we're being preyed upon in a way that like is really toxic. But I mean, I, I do think this is one thing I really liked about um, Doctorow's book is he highlights that we're not sort of just these passive dupes, right? Like human society is more informed than it's ever been. You know, people have more access to knowledge than they've ever had. We do actually have a lot of power. It's just that the gains have really been captured by a few shadowy companies that are able to exert a lot of influence. Not, not that they do it with a lot of sophistication, but that they have a lot of, uh, they, they dominate and so have a lot of power. So I think that does put us in a position where if you could break up the tech monopolies there would be other algorithms that might be better and people would be able to flock to that. Or at least um, that everybody wouldn't end up going down the same paths, right? That some people would be choosing algorithms that would lead to different results. So you wouldn't have at least the amalgamation problem, you know? <laughs> so so that's really interesting to me. And I, I would be really curious to see what you guys think about this. But when it comes to bringing down the monopolies, when it comes to antitrust, when it comes to breaking up Facebook or getting rid of it altogether and having it be impossible for anything to get that big again, would it not, and I, I, I genuinely, I'm genuinely asking, I don't know the answer, would it not be then, as Zuboff and Dr. O pointed out, more difficult to regulate because, I mean, it's already really difficult to regulate the web. You can go to the dark web for just about anything and I would say that that's not a monopoly. <laughs> so would it not become then more difficult to, yeah, just to make sure that there aren't bad actors out there preying on people? I mean, part of the problem is like more difficult, but already there are bad actors preying on people within the current system. Like it's, it's not as though all of this regulation actually works because again, so much of this regulation depends upon the idea that tech does have these like magical wizard powers that allow them to like, figure out exactly what you're saying and have constant surveillance over everything that goes on on their platforms. But in reality, that's just not true, even of like the major players. Yeah, the only thing they're really good at doing is starting genocides, it turns out. <laughs> well, and surveilling people of color in their neighborhoods and giving that information to the police, but... <laughs> 
Yeah. So I think like, again, part of it is also that it's like, if we don't believe tech's self-promotion and we recognize that like, you know, there's just a lot of gaps that already exist, even within a framework that is better. And as Dr. points out, most of the regulation that is tried to like, you know, make the internet a safer place has largely backfired. Like SESTA and FOSTA are an absolute travesty. And the ways that people have tried to like encroach on the internet has largely rather than improving outcomes caused other problems to get even worse. So I think part of it is also just sort of like giving up on this feeling like we can regulate everything that happens on the internet and recognizing that in a large way, there will be just like private domains of the internet where it will be very challenging for anyone to, to reach in the same way that like there are lots of places in the real world that, you know, the government doesn't regulate or fails to regulate as well. So it's like part of it is just recognizing that we can't have a perfectly ordered society. So yes, I think it would be much more challenging to regulate a large, well, so craft clever legislation to regulate, but I don't think it's impossible any more than it's impossible to regulate it under the current environment. Well, and also the solution so far has been to trust big tech companies to regulate it. And, it, you know, they're not particularly trustworthy actors. But I do want to highlight one other element, um, which is that if you get rid of the tech monopolies, Dr. O argues that you actually get a lot more, a lot less incentive to hold on to that extra data which can actually just inherently make the internet safer in a lot of ways for people. Because his argument is basically that these like very few tech companies are sort of locked in an arms race for information because we get bored from particular tactics at a particular time. But if you break up the big tech monopolies, um, you know, and people are able to actually genuinely choose more pro-privacy um, actors that aren't going to take their data and aren't even going to like codify it, let alone keep it. Um, that that that's better. And actually, smaller companies have a much bigger incentive not to collect data at any cost because they're much more liable to like die if, um, you know, because of the liability from these breaches. Unlike big companies who can sort of like, if they have a data leak, you know, they can kind of get around it. They can fight class actions. You know, they have a bigger team that can try to fight um, data leaks a smaller company is going to be much less likely to collect that data in the first place. It's to the point where like Mark Zuckerberg can be invited to court and just be like, no. <laughs> well, that's that's straight up what Google did when the FBI was investigating them for Google uh, <laughs> Street View. Yeah. And I think that also um, if you don't have it so that everyone's social experience is happening in the same space, it becomes a lot harder for the movements like the Freedom Convoy to gain like 80,000 followers in a Facebook group because everyone's kind of hanging out in different social spaces. But I think it was a doctor that pointed out that that's really difficult because if I'm hanging out on Instagram and Kristen's hanging out on TikTok or the opposite, which is more likely true, and I want to see what Kristen's up to, then I'm going to go to Instagram because that's where she is. That's where Robbie is. That's where uh, my my friends are, right? So it's it's almost like it's hard to break it up especially the social aspect of it, because we want to be in the place where our friends are. But that, that's where I liked what um, Dr. O was talking about in terms of adversarial interoperability, yes. um, which I had never thought about before I read the book. But um, just for listeners who haven't read the book, it's this idea that you make your system interoperable with an existing dominant system 
in order to compete with it. And it was what Facebook did vis-a-vis MySpace. His argument is basically that this used to exist all the time and we've just kind of forgotten that it's a tool. So. <laughs> oh, we haven't forgotten it. It's that the monopolies have deliberately crushed adversarial yes. interoperability and a lot of the sort of lock-in <laughs> capitalism has been deliberately built to block that kind of activity. Adversarial interoperability is like, let's say I started a new platform that I called Kristen Chat. And if I built in a feature where I said, you can actually import all of your Facebook messages into Kristen chat. And so when your friend sends you a message on Facebook, you don't have to log into Facebook at all. You can just look at your messages on Kristen chat, and then you can talk to your friends that way without having to, um, you know, be on Facebook. Well, this sounds like a unicorn, Kristen. Where do I sign up? (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, I'm accepting, uh, you know, venture capital funds from uh, the CIA. (laughs) 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 That was a thing I learned from the Zubob book, that the CIA um, has a tech venture capital fund. (laughs) Sure they do. (laughs) The, The ring system as well. This was one of the sections of the book that I... Like, this is, again, like a Doctorow's Greatest Hits. I've seen him write about this before. But, like, the fact that Ring, which is like a home surveillance system, is can be linked up with your neighbors, and then the police just have, like, constant access to the entire surveillance network that your uh, neighborhood has created is super fucked up. Um, But it's also not just something that happens in residential spaces. Like... It's something that always bothers me whenever like, I have to scan my ID going into a bar, that I don't just like show it to a bartender to be like, yes, I am over 18, I can be in this establishment. I get scanned and put into a database of like, people who have attended bars. And I understand that it's, like, it's a great way to be able to prevent like, problem people from just like, bar hopping and being abusive to staff and yada, yada, yada. But I'm like, now I'm also having to do the same thing when I go into a liquor store. And I'll have to do the same thing when I go into a weed store. And it's like, okay, these things are legal, but I'm still, A, afraid of these companies holding on to my data. Because again, this isn't, you know, the government of Alberta doesn't put out these machines. It's some weird third-party contractor, and who knows where the fuck that data goes. Or even more broadly, that that third-party company that's, like, taking that data, like, a lot of companies fail. Let's say that company goes out of business. Now there's, like, a data ghost ship out there that identity thieves can just take from. (laughs) Like it's fun. And sometimes in really comical ways, I forget what this company was, but this happened a few years ago, that some little internet company went belly up and uh, they didn't have money to pay their IT guy. And so they, you know, just shut everything down and sold it off for parts. And so somebody bought their servers and booted them up and realized that none of the data had been wiped. Because it is the actual server itself, it has all of the encryption keys for all of the data of everything that's stored on it. And so he was just like, yeah, I was just shopping for servers and I accidentally bought hundreds of thousands of people's credit card information. And you're just kind of like, if yeah, if you are an identity fraudster, you don't even need to like actually get phishing data. You just need to be on the lookout for used servers and buy up some shitty company that because of our data, like arms race collected a whole bunch of information on its users that they had no plans to delete because, you know, it's not part of their profit structure to delete that data. Okay. So to, uh, to wind us down then, I just have a quick question for you guys. Very simple. Um, how would you fix tech 
if you could if you could change it overnight, like tomorrow you snap your fingers and Facebook goes away, what would you replace it with? What would it look like in your like dream scenario? I think I might have mentioned it once already in terms of like what I think is really cool about technology on the internet is the ways that it allows people to interact with one another and like create shared common spaces. And I think the thing that I would really love is just socialism in that sphere that we can create and operate entirely within platforms that we as the users own collectively. I think Twitter would be so much better if it was a worker-owned cooperative and a user-owned cooperative. If everyone on the planet chips in $5, then maybe we could make a bit for it. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> um, but yeah, it's, it's things like that that I think if I was looking at, like, what does technology look like? in a way that is good. Again, I mentioned this, I credit Dr. O with converting me into a Luddite because I think his, his arguments around Luddism have been very influential for how I view technology. That it's like the promise of technology is this idea that we are going to invest the knowledge of past generations into future generations to make our lives easier and make our lives more rewarding. And if we leave it to the capitalists to sort of steer the ship of technology, that is not the direction that our technology is going to take. And so I don't really know what like a user and worker owned internet looks like, whether it's like one big platform that like is a little like parallel global democracy where we all get together and we have like meetings about the future of the platform or whether it fragments into like a million little local municipalist platforms where I'm mostly just there with like my neighbors and my friends. But either way, I think that's what I would see as like a good future of technology is just like people getting together to steer that ship themselves rather than capitalists deciding where it goes. Yeah. I mean, I don't have a grand vision in part because I'm sort of, <laughs> I don't know very much about tech beyond what we read in these books. Uh, but I think two good starting points are dealing with monopoly, not just in tech, but everywhere, um, you know, really aggressive antitrust. I'm talking like FDR styles. And then also sort of more aggressive, both in terms of more aggressive regulation that genuinely gives penalties for abuses um, and that is actually enforced. And then beyond that, I really like, just to go back to Dr. O's fiction, one of the books in Radicalized is about this person who becomes like, she hacks the toasters in this apartment building that it has like a partnership with companies. She hacks the laundry machine so you can use whatever soap you want and suddenly collects like an army of children from the building who are all also hacking all of these devices. And I think that spirit of resistance, um, of finding places in the tech space that aren't tech monopolies where you can, and fighting the system however you can, that sort of like individual effort, that's the best place we can start to go. Let's realize our power in those like little ways in our lives. And let's also do that through our like collective action for political change. And ultimately, maybe we see a different internet evolve. Yeah. What do you good think? Answers. I don't have an answer <laughs> of my own. <laughs> I just I was deferring to you guys. I don't know. I don't know what I would what I would like to see. I I'm working on another audio project right now where I want writers to kind of envision 
uh, a future that is not dystopian. And so what would an internet look like that isn't run by giant tech megalomaniacs? Like, I would love to hear that. So if if listeners have an idea of like what the internet could look like in a world where we're not being given shitty targeted advertising and it costs us all of our privacy and safety, then send us a voice message. (laughs) You can see the link in our... For the love of God, send Kyla a voice message. (laughs) No, I'm, 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 I'm so worried that if we, if we ask too much for this, I'm just going to start getting like verbal abuse from any of our, like, I don't know if anyone hate listens to us, but, (laughs) (laughs) but yeah, uh, there is a link in the show description on your device where you can send us a voice message. I would, I'm just really curious because I genuinely don't know what an internet would look like that is not run by Facebook and Google. And also not run by the government because that also seems bad. Yeah. Yeah, it does. Yeah. Generally, I like big government, but maybe not for this. Uh, Are you guys happy for me to wind us down or did you have any final thoughts? I do have a plug. Yes, Robbie has a plug. That never happens. <laughs> <laughs> uh, first is uh, read Murray Bookchin because I didn't mention him on this. Uh... <laughs> oh, whoa. This is the latest you've ever mentioned him. <laughs> <laughs> um, and then the second one is one of the actual like hopeful things that I have for what like good technology looks like is a problem by or is a program by the Black Socialists of America called the Dual Power App which looks to sort of like be a replacement for Zoom and a lot of the sort of like uh, meeting technology that we've kind of had to adapt to during the pandemic, recognizing that like, holy shit, Zoom's security protocols are terrible. Like it is shocking that so many millions of people depend on Zoom to like talk to their families or go into work. And it is a shockingly insecure like unknown platform that is really deeply shitty. So yeah, the dual power app by the black socialists of America is under development. Um, If you have some funds to throw their way, it is one of the things that sort of like would help me as an activist immensely is having a good, secure, non-hierarchical way of running meetings online, support their project. It's a very cool opportunity to like see a little bit of like the actual promise of worker and user owned tech. Awesome. I'll link to that too so people can find it. Thank you, Robbie. For us, you can find us on Elon Musk's Twitter at Pullback Podcast. <laughs> That's like a TM. We have to we have to include that now every time we plug Twitter. <laughs> and we are a member of the Harbinger Media Network, where you can find our partner shows at harbingermedianetwork.com. We'll catch you on our next episode. <laughs>